This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. How are former European colonial powers coming to terms with the colonial past? This is particularly an issue in Belgium in the aftermath of King Leopold II's depredations in Congo. But what about other countries? How do they compare? And what does all this have to do with the reckoning with race in the United States in the aftermath of Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd killing, and other cases of police brutality? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're fortunate to have with us today Valérie Rossou, who is a directrice de recherche, research director at the Belgian Fund for Scientific Research, the FNRS. She has a PhD in political science and teaches international negotiation, transitional justice, and memory politics at the Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium. Her research interests focus on post-war reconciliation and the uses of memory in international relations. In 2010 to 2011, she was a senior fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C. Since 2016, she's been a member of the Belgian Royal Academy. In 2020, she was awarded a Max Planck Law Fellowship, which is a multi-year project that has enabled her to form and lead a research group on memory and transitional justice. In 2020, she was appointed by the Belgian Parliament to serve on a commission to deal with the colonial past and was the only expert who participated in the writing of both the initial and the final reports of the parliamentary commission. Uh, and that was in August, 2020 to December, 2022. She's currently working on a book provisionally titled uh, Negotiating Decolonization, The Limits of a Fairy Tale based on her long study of this important historical process. So thanks so much for being with us today, Valérie Rosu. Thank you, John. Great to have you. So your work recently has been focused, uh, as I said, on coming to terms with the Belgian past, you know, in part as a result of this commission by the Belgian parliament. Uh, and as I said in the introduction, this had you know a certain amount to do with uh, the period of King Leopold's rule over what was essentially his private domain in Congo. So can you tell us where the discussion about colonialism and decolonization stands in, in Belgium? Yes, yes. But you know, uh, until the independence of Congo, um, Belgium's school textbooks underlined uh, that 
Belgium's administration of a territory 80 times its size was a model colony. And, and there was a no single reference uh, made to the widespread violations of, of human rights. Okay. After the independence, there was a kind of concealment policy. Uh, the idea was, okay, the colonial past is completely past its history. And so uh, these words were soon contradicted, of course. Well, in 2000, uh, a new government encouraged uh, a critical acceptance of the country's colonial heritage. They launched a parliamentary commission to determine the exact circumstances of the murder of Patrice Lumumba, uh, who was the first uh, prime minister of the Independent Democratic Republic of the Congo, who was assassinated, assassinated in 1961, with an implication of Belgian political uh, responsibility, right? So the commission report um, led to uh, official apologies at that time by the foreign affairs minister. That was okay. Then this critical approach was overturned uh, with the appointment of a new uh, foreign minister who wished to put aside this um, misplaced, quote, quotation marks, uh, this is his word, the misplaced feelings of guilt. And so, um, but anyway, four years ago, the Belgian government launched another parliamentary commission. So you see highs and downs uh, in terms of evolution of the official perspective on the past. And so uh, four years ago, the, the Belgian government launched another parliamentary commission devoted this time to the specificities of the Métis. Um, and at the end of the process, the prime minister apologized for the kidnapping, the segregation, and the forced adoption of thousands of mixed race children throughout Belgian uh, colonial Africa. And then the last step, if I may say so, in 2020, as you just said, the government set up a new parliamentary commission, much more ambitious this time, since its objective was not to deal with a particular event, but with the whole colonial past in three country, in the three countries of the African Great Lakes, Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, if you want. It did last two years and a half, and they organized hearings, more than 150 witnesses, academics, artists, uh, diplomats, militants as well, shared their views, their expertise within the parliament. Everything was transcribed and videotaped. And the same number of people met with the Belgian delegation of MPs who went to Kinshasa, to Bujumbura and Kigali last September. Um, their expectations were also notified and reported to the parliament. And last November, a list of uh, more than 100 recommendations was presented by the president of the commission um, they were they, they needed to be negotiated and big surprise uh, after six intense uh, weeks of negotiation uh, the political parties present at the parliament could not make any deal so the the outcome of the whole process was a zero recommendation just a, a kind of summary of the where we are now so you make it sound as though, and, and the article you wrote that you sent me um, suggested that 
you know, this is not exactly a satisfactory resolution of this process. And I guess I wonder, you know, what what you can tell us about why you think that's the case. And, you know, you mentioned at one point in the article the fact that has always kind of struck me about Belgium, which is this fact that it always seems on the brink of dissolution itself. Uh, and you sort of suggest in the article that that may have something to do with this, you know, not entirely satisfactory resolution. I'm sort of curious, you know, since that's a relatively unique feature of Belgian uh, of Belgium's existence, uh, maybe that is kind of a key to, you know, larger processes. So maybe you could talk about why this has turned out the way it has. Uh-huh. Well, uh, I don't know whether it is more difficult for Belgians than for French or Dutch uh, people to come to terms with their colonial past. I would say, yes, I know. On the one hand, there are some specificities, you are right, which are related to the tensions that undermine the Belgian national identity, which is a fragile identity. I remember back uh, I mean, uh, 20 years ago while I was uh, in no, 10 years ago, when I was in DC, living there with kids, the first time I saw the kids pledging allegiance to the flag of your country, I I felt a sense of shock because I had I didn't have the concept of, of a strong national identity. So the national identity in Belgium is fragile. And there are, I, I would say, maybe four main tensions uh, that are recurrent that are really underlying the whole uh, political debate in Belgium. The first one is, of course, French speakers versus uh, Dutch speakers. And here, there was an impact on the commission because some nationalists in Flanders explicitly, explicitly, sorry, explicitly said, well, in the Congo, it was not us. It was all the responsibility of the French uh, speaking elite, right? So first, Tension. The second one is tension, Catholics versus uh, secularists. It seems a bit old fashioned, but still I could feel this, this influence as well during the hearings. Uh, some were symbolically saying, well, it, it, we don't have anything to do with the Congo because it was about the church and the church was guilty, therefore it's still guilty. So second tension. The third tension is the left-wing versus right-wing political parties, and something that you have in, the, in, in your country and in France as well, but it had an impact because once again, some people could say within the parliament, it was not us in the Congo, it was the capitalist elite. You know, uh, These people were exploiting the Congolese as they were exploiting the poor Belgians here, uh, and their descendants must, must pay now. And the fourth tension that I, I, I was thinking about uh, is the tension between opponents versus defenders of the royal, royal institution. It's, it's not so important, but I think that clearly, at least uh, for some nationalists in Flanders, I mean, they had another agenda than just dealing with the colonial past. So it's an explosive cocktail, if you want. But this is one part of the, of the explanation. I think that on the other hand, uh, one can hardly deny the fact that uh, they are still, it's not completely a, a taboo. There are plenty of academic books, articles about the colonial past, even though the textbooks are not uh, transmitting a lot of information, I think. 
But um, what what I was saying, what I, I was uh, saying on the other hand is because I think that on the other hand, Belgium faces the same difficulties, the same challenge that France, Netherlands, and so on, about the fact that it's not only about the representations of the past, but it's the debate is about the representation of the other, which means racism, and above all, and this is where it is difficult, the representations of one's own group. And I think that the challenge is the same for all the metropoles. Uh, we have to open our eyes on the fact that we were not on the right side of history. And you know, as little Belgians, I would say this is quite quite difficult because there is this narrative, which is a little bit the narrative of the poor little Belgium during World War One, that needed to be saved by Irish and and British soldiers. You know, this this victimhood sense of but of a buffer zone place invaded by all the the powerful, you know, countries around. Well, here it, the scenario was really completely different. So I think that it takes time to accept that. Inter interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm interested in the you know way in which the Belgian story compares to you know what's going on in France or Germany, which is you know as you probably know having a its own fairly extensive and kind of unprecedented discussion, although it's been going on for quite a while really uh, about its colonial past, which was you know, a minor issue when I, certainly when I first started going to uh, Germany in the early 1980s, it just wasn't something that people talked about. I mean, gradually historians started to talk about, you know, what had happened in Namibia, in German Southwest Africa, but it wasn't really a political issue. It was sort of an academic issue for a while. Uh, and, and in the intervening or the last 20 years or so it's become i would say increasingly and in some ways a kind of insoluble problem it seems to me i mean yoshka fisher the you know one time 60s radical who became the foreign minister of germany um you know gave namibia he said we're not going to choose sides you know which group gets the money that we're going to give you we, we basically see ourselves as responsible for you know, uh, uh, exploiting and, and underdeveloping uh, Namibia. So we're just going to give it to the country as a whole and, you know, say that's that's it. Well, that was not it. And the issue continues. And, you know, I wonder, you know, how resolvable in a way are these matters? I mean, can can there be a resolution of the uh, of this, you know, unpleasant past? Uh -huh. That's interesting what you what you are saying. Um, I, I think that at the beginning of all these kind of processes and and and, and uh, negotiations, but also committees, and uh, there is in most of the cases I know very good intentions, but also maybe very naive intentions, in the sense that there is a a kind of premise which is at least it was a case in Belgium for sure it was so ambitious over ambitious the premise was okay we are going my group my, my party is going to fix you know past and past and current um, discriminations no we are not going to fix anything like this you know you know in a commission that will last a couple of months or of even two years 
Uh, in this sense, to me, it's not solvable. Absolutely, you're right. Doesn't mean that there is nothing to, to do and that it's not urgent, but it's a very long process, multifaceted, multi-level process and so on and so forth. Right. I mean, it's struck me, I guess, since I started working on these issues, which is what led us to meet eventually, um, you know, how difficult it is to resolve the past. I mean, claims are made about, you know, the degree in the United States, for example, the degree in this thing, the 1619 Project. The claim is made that, you know, the history has not been told truthfully, which you know, I, I find a claim that's mm-hmm. very problematic. I mean, impugns the intentions of, you know, generations of historians. I mean, some of whom did write, of course, to justify the, you know, the lost cause, so-called lost cause of, uh, of slavery, of the South, of the Confederacy, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, you know, not necessarily a good uh, characterization of a lot of the other history that's been written. So, so in any case, I mean, I think it's just very difficult to resolve claims that are, you know, sort of more or less expansive and difficult to pin down. And I mean, I guess my tendency has come to be to think about this in terms of the present and To, to try to rectify inequalities in the present, you know, leaving aside exactly how they got to be what they are, because that's going to be a matter of sort of interminable uh, controversy, it seems to me. I mean, does that seem crazy to you? Yeah, but I think that, well, no, I am completely on the same wavelength as you, but I read your books, so I was trained, or I was, you know, I grew up with your books. I wish I wish the the, the Belgian MPs uh, knew your books, because they, they would have been um, much more efficient, uh, um, I think. Uh, no, but, but the question is really about the present, the present tensions and... and and discrimination, for sure. But the, the fact, as I said, you know, this this reaction of almost all the parties in Belgium, it was not us. And then they have their guilt um, target, you know, targeted. Uh, uh, maybe not scapegoat. Maybe they were, to some extent, right. But so so I think that it it really would help to to be aware of all these uh, other agendas going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right. So uh, thank you for the plug about my books. But uh, (laughs) speaking of influence coming from the United States, um, I'm sort of curious, you know, all of this is kind of unfolding in the European context. I mean, largely around the colonial past of these various countries, Uh, but it's all unfolding in kind of the uh, context of the sort of racial reckoning uh, as it's sometimes you know, referred to in the United States over, you know, the killing of black, typically black men, although some black women, of course, 
particularly by police, although the Trayvon Martin case was, you know, not about the police. It was about a vigilante, basically. Uh, but, you know, this process has been uh, underway for 10 years in the United States. And I, I'm curious, you know, how you see that, see what's going on in the U.S. as kind of influencing these discussions and developments in Europe. Mm-hmm. No, no, but there is a direct and explicit relationship between both continents in this regard and, and both phenomenon. Uh, in, in Belgium, it was particularly the case after the murder of, of George Floyd. Um, this, uh, I don't know whether in the US you realize that, but the wave, it was literally a wave of reactions in, in the world, at least in Europe, this uh, Black Lives Matter movement. In Belgium, it impacted the, the, the political scene in a, a very obvious way, in the sense that on the, 8th, the, the 7th of June, uh, a big demonstration brought together more than uh, 10,000 protesters in, in Brussels. Uh, despite the severity of the sanitary confinement, it was really the pandemic time. And, and 10,000, this number uh, can seem uh, ridiculous for you in the US because you know it's a big country. But for us in Belgium, 10,000 people during the pandemic in the street, it revealed something. And so it was explicitly about uh, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And then a couple of days later, King Philip marked the 60th anniversary of the independence of the Democratic uh, Republic of Congo, expressing his deepest regrets. These are his words for the for the acts of violence and, and the brutality inflicted during the colonization. It was the first time that that, that, that his words were so clear. And, and 10 days later, the Belgian parliament established a commission, which was, you know, a kind of puff, puff, puff. Uh, so the pace of the decisions that followed the, the Black Lives Matter was very fast. And the link between the two phenomena, so racism in, in the US and then discussion of colonial uh, legacy in Europe, was also made explicit during the hearings so I, I attended all, all the, year, the hearings during the, the year, all the, the, in the framework of all the hearings devoted to current discriminations, almost all militants, not only the Afro-descendants, okay, uh, referred to the murder of George Floyd to, to describe the obvious continuity they could see between the colonial despise uh, towards the, 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 the Black individuals and the current discrimination. So it was, I mean, the the, the relationship was absolutely direct. Even the vocabulary, the grammar was co- common. And the, 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 so the, the expectations, the demands were sometimes the same because they wanted a, an anti-racism uh, plan. That was one of the recommendations, but it was not uh, um, agreed because of the lack of, of uh, compromise at the end, but it was a, a major a major expectation among Afro-descendants. Right. But I mean, you know, as you just said, I mean, there's a kind of distinction in the U.S. It's about racism. And in in uh, Europe and Belgium, certainly, it's a, primarily 
about uh, colonialism and it, and its effects. But of course, colonialism didn't stay in Congo. You know, many people from Congo and elsewhere in the African Great Lakes region, where Belgium was, you know, had uh, colonized, uh, are now residents of Belgium mm-hmm. and, and France and other places. Um, so I guess I'm curious, you know, how this process, which, you know, as you as you say, you know, was so heavily influenced by the George Floyd murder. Um, you know, how is that affecting the way Belgians and Europeans, um, you know, think about these questions of race? And I mean, I think it's become more, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that it's become more of a question of racism in the European context uh, and in, in a certain way less, the, the issue of colonialism has in some sense kind of receded and it's not going away. I'm not suggesting that, but mm-hmm. uh, in other words, race as a kind of dividing line, the way we think about it in the US, I think has come to be more pervasive way of thinking about things in Europe as well. Is that, is yeah. that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh... I think that the more the more contentious, I mean, the emotions that were present throughout the process, I mean, the emotions were very intense during the hearings, in the media, uh, in the newspapers, uh, you know, um, the testimonies, everything was quite emotional in all directions. Uh, grief, a sense of uh, guilt, a sense of um, shame. Um, rage or even hatred i mean everything was was there very intense and i think that for most i don't know i cannot speak on their behalf but if i come back to if i remember what what was said during the hearings it was above all about the current discriminations with which it means about racism now and in this regard it was completely similar or parallel to what's happening uh, in, in the U.S., um, so we face we we all face, I think, the, the same um, challenge, the same challenge, and the same uh, <laughs> emotions to appease in a way or another. Mm-hmm. Right, but it's not easy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, you also mentioned in your article a, a sort of interesting episode uh, in which you had used a quotation from the writer Victor Hugo uh, that, you know, seemed to you to speak to the circumstances of the situation you were trying to, you know, describe and make sense of. Um, and then somebody uh, in the commission that you were involved in, the group that was working on these problems, said, you know, Victor Hugo was a racist. And, you know, I would prefer if you don't use that quotation. Uh, and I mean, I wonder whether that's really the way we can resolve these things. I mean, that is, uh, I don't know exactly anything about Victor Hugo's, you know, racist uh qualities. I mean, I don't know anything about that, as apparently you did not either when you absolutely when you quoted that passage. And, you know, I guess the question is whether we, you know, anybody who's had any kind of things that they've said wrong and or that we now regard as unacceptable is you know, is unquotable, so to speak, uh, or whether we don't have to sort of recognize that people, 
you know, have complicated qualities and characteristics. And, you know, there's a kind of issue about throwing the babe out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about, I don't know that much about Victor Hugo in the first place, but, uh, you know, sort of mm-hmm. to make that aspect of his past somehow you know, absolutely disqualifying. I mean, I don't know who will survive that test, you know, in so at some point. We would not, we would not. No, no, no. It's but it's a, a very emblematic anecdote, John, indeed. Uh, so what happened is that I, I was in charge of writing the common introduction of the first report. So each chapter was signed by its own uh, authors because it, there were as well tensions between us. Since we were coming from different worlds, some were academics, other were representatives of, of uh, uh, Afro-descendant communities, others com- were coming from uh, uh, the Burundi. So I mean, it was a, uh, it was interesting in this regard. So it was not basically the very easy academic world, comfortable. Everybody speaks the same, and so on. However, it it was a challenge, and so when I I wrote uh, I I quoted Victor Hugo, it it was a single sentence. The sentence I thought was inspiring, and it's still to me, which is, the dead are invisible; they are not absent. And the point that I wanted to make was that okay, we see people here at the negoci- negotiation table during the hearings, but there are many many other you know people here at, at the at the parliament in people's minds. So we were not only the people, I mean, concretely here and now visible. Anyway, uh, I thought that it was relevant, but, and I, it was really, I I, I felt so surprised when I immediately received the, the email to tell me, stop, I mean, it's uh, unnegotiable. Un- we're not going to quote Victor Hugo in the introduction. Then I, I, I didn't know, I, because I didn't know the passage, you know, that was wrong. And that was explicitly racist. So I don't. I I I confirmed that it it was not a completely ridiculous remark. So I thought about your your sense of nuance. Okay, but we could still keep. But to be frank, this process was so interesting for me. It was a learning process in terms of positionality, in terms of reflectiveness. Uh, sorry, reflex reflexivity. Uh, but it was also um, demanding, and I felt I'm not going to fight all the time. If it's a problem for one out of ten, it's enough to erase the name because I, I have plenty of, of I had plenty, uh, plenty other potential quotations if you want. Uh, but that was, you know, this question of legitimacy of the experts is also a big part of the of the game and it was not easy i don't know whether i can be longer but it's another chapter of the this long adventure right i mean it obviously is a challenge to sort of figure out you know how to negotiate these kinds of situations and um you know i think it's going to be difficult for all of us in some ways to try to figure out what you know some people may find offensive and you know that we had no idea of and uh, maybe that will reveal, you know, new sides of, of these people that we hadn't known and, and that sort of thing. Um, so in any case, it's going to be an interesting uh, challenge, as you say. And uh, thank you for talking to us about, you know, what you've been oh, doing. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Brussels or in the Belgian parliament. And um, we look forward to hearing more as you proceed. But that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Valerie Rosu for sharing her insights about coming to terms with the past in Belgium and beyond. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. 